0: Last Sunday, we began a new sermon series on the cross of Christ. And last Sunday, our focus was on the centrality of the cross to the message of the gospel. We saw that the gospel once for all delivered to the saints is fundamentally good news, a a report of something that has been accomplished and not good advice, a, a prescription of what we must do. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has died for you and that through his sacrificial substitutionary death, your sins have been taken away. God's wrath has been appeased. Our relationship with him has been restored and we are now heirs of eternal life And all. Not because of anything we have done or anything that we must do, but simply because of what has been done for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This morning, I want to draw your attention to the reason for the cross. Why did Jesus have to die in order for us to be forgiven? Why did He have to die in order for God's wrath to be quenched? Why did He have to die in order for us to have eternal life? Why couldn't God just forgive us without having to sacrifice His Son? For isn't that what he commands us to do? I mean, no one has to die before Sarah can forgive me when I sin against her at home, and likewise, no one has to die before I can forgive her. And in our relationship, love covers a multitude of sins. No sacrifice is required. No blood has to be shed. So why can't God do the same? Why did Jesus have to die before we could be forgiven? Why the cross? This is the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning. So let us pray and ask God for his blessing upon our study, asking him that we might see and receive his truth and that his truth might renew our minds and transform our lives. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you this morning asking why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't you just forgive? Father God, I believe that we will find our answer when we see you. When we see who you are. When we see the essence of your nature. And so, Father God, we come before you asking that you would open our eyes. That you would give us eyes to see you this morning. That we might know and understand the reason for the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why the cross? Well, as I said, our answer is going to be found when we see God, when we see who He is, we see what He is like. So turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, because here we have a vision of who the living God is. Exodus chapter 34, I'll be reading uh, verses 6 through 8. Exodus chapter 34. Verses six through eight listen to this. this is the very word of God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear? the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And that is the reading of God's word. In these verses, the Lord reveals himself to Moses. We know from the previous chapters that uh, Moses is sort of reeling at this point. He had uh, been God's instrument to lead the people out of Egypt. He had, he had brought them through the Red Sea. He had brought them through the wilderness. He had brought them to Mount Sinai. God had at Mount Sinai spoken to the people and had called Moses up on the mountain to, to give to them his law. And while he was up on the mountain, the people got restless. And they made for themselves this golden calf by which they began to worship. When, God, or when Moses came down the mountain, he was incensed. And he knew that God was going to be incensed also. And, and, and he's wondering, well, God, what are you going to do? And, and he knows that, that God's wrath is going to burn against these people. But, but he's pleading with God, don't, don't destroy them. For your own name's sake, don't destroy them. If anything, destroy me in their place. And God says, no, you cannot be the substitute. You cannot stand in their place. And Moses at this point is saying, well, God, what are you going to do? And he says, I need, if I'm going to continue to lead this people, I need to know you. I know you, but I need to know you. I need to see you. Reveal to me your glory. We see it there in verse 13. He says, now therefore, verse 13 of chapter 33. He says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And this is the request that he makes to God. And we see God's response there in verse 17 of chapter 33. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So here is Moses pleading with God, God, if I'm going to lead this people, I need to know you, please show me your glory. And the Lord says, you have found favor in my sight. I will show you my glory, not my full glory. You can't handle that. That would be too much for you. No one can see my face and live, but I will I will show you my back. As it were, I will I will let my glory pass before you. you will see me truly, but not completely. And this is what we have in chapter 34, verse six. The Lord does what he said he was going to do. He passes before Moses. He shows Moses His glory. He shows Moses the glory of His character. And this is what Moses sees. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is the God who reveals Himself to Moses, merciful and gracious. A God who does good even when it is undeserved, a God who relents from doing harm even when it would be deserved. He is a God merciful and gracious. He is a God slow to anger. A God who bears with the foolish rebellions of his people without simply wiping them off the map. The fact that humanity is here at all is a testimony to his his great patience. In the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God, He did not wipe them out right away, but He was slow to anger. And God continues to be slow to anger as with the people of Israel. And we will see this again and again and again. He is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who keeps His Word. A God who makes promises and stands by them. He is a God who delights to forgive iniquity. Just imagine the good news of that. We have a God, the living God, who delights to forgive. I don't know about you, but not a week goes by for me when I uh, do not when I'm not overwhelmed by my sin. When I'm not yet again amazed by the ways that I can rebel against God, by the ways that I can put myself first, by the the selfish choices that I can make. And I find myself humbled. I find myself coming before God and saying, God, I am not worthy. And what a comfort it is at those moments to know that we have a God who delights to forgive iniquity. We have a God who delights to forgive transgression and sin. This is the God who reveals Himself To Moses. But at the very same time, in the very same breath, God also reveals Himself as the One who will by no means clear the guilty. Our God is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. A God who delights to forgive but a God who will by no means clear the guilty. A God who cannot leave the guilty unpunished. A God who will punish them to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. And so, while God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked and actually delights in the forgiveness of sinners, He is bound by His own character to punish sin. He can no he can by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That is quite a vision. A God who must punish evil. A God whose wrath is a necessity. And we don't just see that here in this vision that, that Moses has of, of the Lord. We see it throughout the Scriptures. We see the necessity of of God's wrath again and again in the language that the Bible uses to to talk about God's wrath. John Stott, someone who I uh, suspect most of you are familiar with, the the great uh, English preacher, John Stott says that there are three types of language that Scripture uses to talk about God's wrath. And each type of language shows us something important. The first way that God speaks about God's wrath is is the language of provocation. The Lord is often described, and in fact often describes Himself as being provoked by Israel's idolatry, by being provoked by their gross immorality to severe anger. Turn with me, for example, to Judges chapter 2. In Judges chapter 2, we see God speaking of Himself as being provoked in Judges chapter 2, verse 12, begin, begin at verse 11, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you are familiar with this refrain. This is what we see again and again and again throughout the book of Judges, that, that the people that God has led into the promised land, that they can again and again turn from Him, that they again and again turn to worship other gods, that they again and again delve into gross immorality. In verse 12 we read, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who... Plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. The people of Israel abandoned the Lord, they turned to other gods, they they went into gross immorality, and we are told that the Lord's anger was provoked against them. We encounter this type of language throughout the prophets. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter thirty two. Again, this is just a sampling of, of what we see. But in Jeremiah chapter 32, uh, verses 30 and 32, we again see the same thing. Here, this is now near the end of Israel's history rather than the beginning. So we read, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but "...provoke me to anger by the works of their hands," declares the Lord. "...this city has aroused my anger with wrath from the day that it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger." Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to Me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. The Lord speaks of Himself as being provoked. We could go to other places in, in Ezekiel and in Isaiah and in Amos and Hosea we, that speak of God being provoked to anger, provoked by the immorality of God's people. And when we hear this language, we must be clear about what it means. It does not mean that God became so irritated with the people of Israel that he finally snapped. I remember that when I was a boy, my dad would always correct me whenever I said, He made me so mad. Usually I was talking about one of my brothers and something that they had done to me. Maybe they had taken a toy or they had lost my baseball glove or something. And I would, um, you know express my anger in physically inappropriate ways, whether by you know hitting him in the head or something along those lines. And and my dad would come to me and he would correct me and he would ask me why I had done what I had done. And I would say, he made me so mad. And my dad would say, no, no, he didn't. He didn't make you mad. He may have done something, but you chose to get mad. You chose to be angry with him. And I heard that many, many, many times. Tells you something about how quick I am to learn, I guess. But that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, we're, we're not talking about a, a God who, who, was, who just got so irritated that finally He snapped, that finally He lost His temper. Rather, when the Scriptures speak about God being provoked to anger, they mean that, that wrath is God's necessary, inevitable response to evil. God's wrath is necessarily provoked by idolatry and by immorality. John Stott explains it this way. He writes, The prophets did not mean that Yahweh was irritated or exasperated or that Israel's behavior had been so provocative that his patience had run out. No, the language of provocation expresses the inevitable reaction of God's perfect nature to evil. It indicates that there is within God a holy intolerance of idolatry, of immorality, and of injustice. Whenever these occur, they act as stimuli to trigger His response of anger or indignation. He is never provoked without reason. It is evil alone which provokes Him, and necessarily so, since God must always be and behave like God. If evil did not provoke him to anger, he would no longer be God. God's anger is necessarily provoked. God's character is necessarily provoked by evil. So the anger of of, uh, provocation shows us that God's wrath is a necessary response. Necessary not by anything outside of God, but necessary by His own essence, by His own character, by His own nature. He cannot respond to evil any other way. It causes anger. It causes wrath. The second type of language that Scripture uses to speak about God's wrath, we already heard it in some of the passages that we read, it is, it is the language of burning when God's wrath is provoked, as we read in Joshua and Judges, when God's wrath is provoked, it is said to burn. It is said to be kindled. We see this in the language of Joshua 7.1. Turn there with me. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Again, a familiar story. The people of Israel have just entered into the promised land. They have God has given them this supernatural victory over uh, the city of Jericho. But remember, everything in Jericho was to be dedicated to the Lord. It was Korban. It was, it was devoted to destruction. But there was one man in Israel who wasn't willing to let all those goods be destroyed. And he took some for himself. And we read in chapter 7, verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is the language, again, that we see throughout the Scriptures. Just think of how often we think or we read about God's anger. Burning, we, we see it in Genesis and in Exodus as, as the people of, of Israel uh, rebel against uh, God and, and grumble and complain against Him over and over. We, we see God's anger kindled against them. We see it in Joshua and Judges. Uh, we see it throughout the Psalms. We, we see it in the prophets that God's anger is said to burn. And the idea conveyed by the language of of burning is that evil will necessarily be consumed or destroyed when it encounters God's wrath. God's wrath is necessarily provoked by evil. And God's wrath necessarily consumes or destroys evil once it is provoked. It will burn. It is the language that we see, it is similar to the language we see in in Psalm 1 where the chaff will be blown away, we are saying, the way of the wicked will perish. It will be destroyed. This is the image that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he describes God as a consuming fire. When you come before God, you come before one who is a consuming fire. He is not safe. To remember what C.S. Lewis said, He is not safe. If you are evil, you will be destroyed. If your life is dross, you will be consumed. Evil cannot stand in His presence this is why isaiah thought that he was undone when he found himself in the presence of the holy 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 lord god almighty remember that scene from isaiah 6 isaiah finds himself in the presence of of the three holy god and and he says woe is me i am undone why because he knows himself to be unclean. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. How can I not be consumed? How can I not be destroyed? He feared he was at his end because he was in the presence of a God whose wrath burns against evil. God's wrath necessarily consumes. God's wrath necessarily destroys this is what is conveyed by the language of burning. So we see that when God's wrath is provoked, it is said to burn. And the third way that Scripture talks about God's wrath is the language of satisfaction or completion. According to Stop, the chief word used here is, is the idea of kalah. It's a Hebrew term and it's a word that's that used to, to bringing something to an end. Bringing something to its completion. Stott writes, the chief word is kalah, which is used particularly by Ezekiel in relationship to God's anger. It means to be complete, to be at an end, to be finished, to be accomplished, to be spent. Through Ezekiel, Yahweh warns Judah that he is about to accomplish, as it's translated in the authorized version, or satisfy in the revised standard version, or spend in the NIV his anger upon or against Israel, they have refused to listen to him. They have persisted in their idolatry. So now at last, the Lord says, the time has come. The day is near. I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. The language of completion, the language of of satisfaction, it is language that is used to describe the pouring out of God's wrath. And the main idea that is communicated by this language is that once God's anger is provoked, that once it is kindled, that once it is burning, God's wrath must be released. God's wrath must be spent. It will be poured out. Only when it is spent does it cease. To be sure, God's wrath can be delayed. That's what it means to say that God is slow To anger. But we must understand that when God's anger is delayed, it is only being stored up. Think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He's speaking to uh, the Jews of his day. Uh, He says that you are storing up for yourselves wrath for that day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. His wrath has not yet been revealed against you. But do not mistake that to believe that His wrath will never be poured out. It will be. There is a day coming when His wrath will be poured out in full. And in the meantime, the wrath that you are provoking, the wrath that is burning, is a wrath that is being stored up. It may be delayed, but it is only extinguished when it is spent. In His book, The Cross of Christ, Stott brings these three ways of talking about God's wrath together Uh, in this picture. He says, to sum up, God is provoked to jealous anger over His people by their sins. Once kindled, His wrath burns and is not easily quenched. He unleashes it, pours it out, or, or spends it. This threefold vocabulary vividly portrays God's judgment as arising from within Him, out of His holy character, as wholly consonant with it, and therefore as inevitable. God's wrath is an expression of His holiness. It's an expression of His character. And therefore, since God cannot but be God, it is His inevitable, necessary response to evil. Now, I know that this is troubling for many it's it's difficult to get our minds around how God the God who is said to be merciful and gracious must necessarily respond to sin with such burning wrath we we trouble to to we struggle to to get our minds around this we we may be wondering why God's wrath can't just be extinguished why does it have to be spent why does it have to be poured out I think a couple of illustrations may help us to to understand this necessity. The first is economic. Uh, My father-in-law has a policy uh, regarding money where he says he will not lend money to anyone that he is not willing just to give the money to them. If he's going to let someone borrow money, he must first be willing to just let them have it because he knows there's a chance that it won't come back to him, that, that it may not be Repaid. And he understands that if the person doesn't repay the loan, he is going to have to assume that debt himself. He is going to have to make up for the loss. The debt cannot be just forgiven. It, it doesn't just disappear. If it's not paid back, he has to assume the debt I was once involved in an arbitration case between uh, business partners in Asheville, North Carolina. One of them was a member of our church and, and one of them was a member of another church, uh, in uh, another PCA church. And so following the instructions of, of 1 Corinthians 6, they didn't want to sue one another in the public courts. And so they asked the churches to, to come together and to, to figure out how this could be resolved. And the reality was that um, the, the members of the other church had invested a significant amount of money in the business of the man who was a member of my church. And the man who was a member of my church proved not to be a stellar businessman. And he made some bad decisions. You know, he was only like 23, so, you know, we'll cut him some slack. But, you know, he 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 made some bad decisions, poorly handled the money, nothing um, vicious, no, nothing intentional, but stupid and the money was all gone, and there were debts everywhere to be paid and The question was, how are we going to handle this? Well, in the reality of that situation, one thing that we quickly figured out was that somebody was going to have to assume that debt. It was either going to be the investors or it was going to be the man who had whose business had gone bankrupt, but someone was going to lose money. It couldn't just vanish. The debt had to be paid. It couldn't just be forgiven. That helps us a little bit to, I think, understand the necessity of the debt being paid. But again you might say, well this is not financial. This is this is different. And so maybe a second illustration can can take it a bit further. And I want you just to think of the moral indignation that you feel when a judge acquits the guilty? Who is it that just stands out to you in the recent history of the United States as particularly guilty? There are a few that come to my mind. There are probably a few that come to your mind as well. If you follow sports, there's been you know, uh, at least a few just in the last season, uh, men who have done some pretty terrible things who you can think of and say, yes, justice needs to be done. Now, imagine the indignation that you would feel if the judge just decided to say, well, you know, we're going to let bygones be bygones. No, you know, know, we're just going to forget about it. We're just going to, you know, wipe the slate clean. We're just going to start over. The reality is that the victim may forgive the one who has done violence to him. The victim may forgive the debt of the one who has wronged them. But a judge cannot. A judge should not acquit the guilty. It is simply wrong. It is a violation of justice. And it arouses our own moral indignation. And this is exactly the way God commands us To relate to one another. God does command us as individuals to forgive. He does command us to allow love to to cover a, a multitude of sins. To bear others' burdens. But He forbids judges to do so. It is an abomination, God says, for a judge to acquit the guilty. Individuals are to turn the other cheek. Judges are to be guided by the principle of equity. An eye for an eye. A tooth. For a tooth. As an individual, you can forgive the one who has sinned against you, but a judge is required to carry out justice. Well, how much more must the judge of all the earth do what is right? If we know that evil must be punished for justice to be done, then why does it surprise us that God must punish sin? He cannot just forgive as is so often Suggested. He is the judge of all the earth. Now, it's not that he's reluctant to forgive. It's not that he's hesitant, that he's not sure that he really wants to do it. As we have seen, he is a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He delights to forgive. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. But. He is a righteous God who can by no means clear the guilty. Now, it is far from the truth to suggest that that God the Father is reluctant and that Jesus somehow comes along to try to persuade him. Not at all. God, the three and one, together of one mind, delights to forgive. They long to forgive. But he may only forgive in a way that does not violate or compromise his own Righteousness, his own holiness, his own character. This is the tension that we see in Romans chapter 3. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. Paul has spent the first few chapters of Romans demonstrating that we are all sinners, that we are all guilty. As he says so famously, In verses 22 and 23, he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the point that that Paul has come to saying, listen, we are all uh, we are all justly condemned before God. There is nothing that any of us can say in our Defense. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And then Paul writes in verse 25, uh, speaking of Christ Jesus, he says that Christ Jesus is whom God has put forward as a propitiation by His blood. A propitiation being a a sacrifice that that appeases the wrath of God. He says Christ has been put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's Righteousness. This was done as a demonstration of God's righteousness. One of the reasons that we have the cross is because it was meant to demonstrate God's righteousness. We're going to look at this more fully next week when we see uh, the cro- um, Christ as prophet upon the cross. Christ is revealing God to us. But here we see that it is done as a revelation of God's righteousness. Now, why did God's righteousness need to be revealed? Why did it need to be demonstrated? Why did it need to be vindicated? Well, he tells us, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Remember what we said about God. God is a God who is slow to anger. He's a God who does not punish right away. And in His divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. Now, this was something that the the people in the Old Testament gloried in. Think of Psalm 103, where the psalmist just delights to say, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. God does not Treat us as our sins deserve. That is good news. But it left His righteousness in question. How can a righteous God not punish sinners? You see, we we sing Psalm 103 rather frequently here. One of my favorite hymns is based on Psalm 103. But we don't tend to see it as a problem. We delight in the fact that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but we don't wrestle with it as a, as a problem. We talk a lot about the problem of evil. We talk a lot about the fact that we don't understand how God could, could allow you know, such suffering and evil things to happen. And I will grant you that is a problem. That is a problem to be wrestled with. But we ought also to wrestle with the problem of good. We ought to wrestle with the problem of grace. We ought to all wrestle with the problem of forgiveness. How can a good God leave evil unpunished? Psalm 130 tells us that if, if God treats us as our sins deserve, then we will all be undone. He asks, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God treats us as our sins deserve, it's going to be the end, but how could God not treat us as our sins deserve? This is the dilemma that God faced. Love versus justice. And, and it's, not, it's not that God is loving some of the time and just some of the time. He is love. He is justice. He's the very definition of these things. But how can He be both in relationship to sinners such as us? Well, the answer to this dilemma comes in the cross. Look with me at verse 26 of Romans 3. He says again, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be what? Both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. How is it that God can be righteous, can be just, and yet can justify sinners, can acquit the guilty? We find our answer only in the cross. Now we must be clear about what's going on here. God, when God puts forth Christ as the punishment for sin, he is, he is not punishing a third party. That's the way we sometimes think, and that, that really wouldn't be justice. What God is doing is he is taking the punishment upon himself. Remember who Christ is. He is God come in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. Equal with God, distinct but equal. The same in substance, equal in power and, and glory. He is God come in human flesh to take the penalty upon Himself. And so here at the cross, God absorbs the debt. God takes the penalty. It is what Luther called the great exchange. He, we, we get all of His life. We get all of His blessing. He gets all of our sin. All of God's wrath. God in the person of Christ is bearing our punishment. Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be justified, so that we can be reconciled all the while that He is just and holy and righteous, just and the Justifier. That is what the cross is all about. That is why it was necessary. It was necessary because we have a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who delights to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but who can by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And it is the best news that you can imagine to know that God is both. Because if God's justice is compromised, our hope is polluted. If God does not hate sin, what hope do we have that He will eradicate it? What hope do we have that He will put all things right? The fact that we look forward to an inheritance that is undefiled, that is unpolluted, that is unstained, rests totally upon God's holy hatred of sin. But the fact that we have an inheritance in that new heavens and that new earth rests totally upon His mercy because if God's mercy is thwarted, if if He cannot acquit the guilty then our hope is lost. If His justice is compromised, our hope is polluted. If His mercy is thwarted, our hope is lost. But because God in Christ is both just and the justifier, our hope is perfect and our hope is secure. As Peter says, we have a living hope that is kept in heaven for us, even as we are kept for it by God's power through faith. You hear that? It's kept for for us, and we are kept for it. That's the security of the inheritance that is ours in Christ, because He is both merciful and gracious, and because He is perfectly just. And because this is true, because God in Christ is both just and the justifier, That is one reason we call the message of the cross good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen.